Building web UIs in Python has always been an interesting proposition. On one end, we have the full web design story with artisanal HTML and CSS. On the other end, there are several Python platforms that aim to bring RAD, rapid application development style of building Python apps, to the web. Those can be great, and I've covered a couple of them, but they usually reach a limit on what you can do or how they integrate with the larger web ecosystem. On this episode, we have Samuel Colvin back to share his latest exciting project, Fast UI. With Fast UI, you can build responsive web applications using React without writing a single line of JavaScript or touching NPM. Yet designers and other tools can focus on React frontends for a professional spa-like app experience. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 449, recorded December 14th, 2023. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by Bright Data. Bright Data is professional web scraping and a dataset marketplace. If you need data and it doesn't have an API, check out talkpython.fm slash brightdata today. And it's brought to you by Sentry. Don't let those errors go unnoticed. Use Sentry like we do here at TalkPython. Sign up at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. Hey, Samuel. Welcome back to TalkPython to me. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. So soon after last time. It's always amazing to have you on. In fact, you were on just last week in a really cool show that uh, tons of people enjoyed and is not yet out at the time of recording, but will be released to the world by the time your show goes out live. So it's a bit of a time travel thing. Very, very appropriate here. But it was under the you know full-time open source developers panel of like a bunch of folks. For example, Charlie Marsh, Will McGugan, Gina Hoska, and so on, right? And you snuck in for a minute there in uh, <laughs> on your travels, but now you're back and we're here to talk properly about something really excellent that you put together called Fast UI, which is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so, so much for having me. And yeah, I'm in a slightly better better environment for a <laughs> podcast than the, the stairwell of a, of a <laughs> uh, restaurant in somewhere in Istanbul. So yeah, it's nice to be hey, back. High marks for effort there. Come on, that was great. <laughs> it was um it was good fun but it was uh this is a better place to talk about these things yeah well i hope you had a good trip and you're, you're back and at it you know kim out in the audience points out you know, hey could you just write another impressive tool for the next week's show because uh <laughs> things are going pretty prolifically over there you know, tell people a bit about pydantic the company they probably heard of the library but just what are you up to these days so pydantic's obviously been around since 2017 originally but then it's like Something weird happened at the beginning of 2021. I don't know quite what that was, but like Pyantic, like the downloads just like went crazy. So we were like 5 million downloads then and we're now at 130 million. So like the, yeah, it's go gone crazy. And then just a bit more than a year ago, I was very lucky. Sequoia got in touch with me and, and basically said that I want to start a company. I had been meaning to do that after, after I released Pyantic V2 that I was then working on. Yeah, I started the company beginning of this year and now have an amazing team of 10 people working with me. So we released Pylantic V2 finally, having originally told people it would take me alone three months. It took me and I guess then six people a, a year in total, but that was that was released back in the summer. And now we're working on, on a platform that I'm not going to talk about now, but I would love it if you'd have me back, <laughs> I guess, the beginning of Q2. Or is that, ne is that next week or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite <laughs> next week. Certainly Q2 like 2024, week. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to try and get to open beta and, in, in Q1. So yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, yeah, well. But off the back of, so that, without getting into a lot of details on it, has platform component to it. And so we have people, people will be logging in, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just thinking about all of the path and the churn of building the, of the relatively mechanical bits of an application again with, it doesn't matter actually if you're building it with, with React or with one of the other front-end frameworks, you end up having a whole bunch of stuff that's duplicated between 
what the front end guys are doing and what the full stack developers or the back end developers are building for us. And I guess for lots of people, there's a pedantic model that's kind of at the core of lots of those bits. And I was just dreading all of that churn. And I had been wanting to build something like FastUI for a long time, but that the fact that we're going to be using it internally really spurred me on to go and go and get it built and release release it in like a very incomplete phase to see what people thought. And yeah, there's been a great reaction and here I am. Yeah, there has been quite the reaction to it. Let's see, do the GitHub star test. It's 2.6 thousand stars and it's what, two weeks old? Yeah. A month old? Yeah, a month old. Last month anyway. Well, it was only released. Publicly, like, yeah, two weeks, less than two weeks ago. Or maybe two weeks ago today. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you probably, so you you worked on it a little bit private and then you flipped the bit on the public status. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you don't want people just to go, whoa, what are they building? I mean, maybe you do. Maybe you're like, what is this GitHub repo? They they misspelled fast API. I don't know what they're working on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and also, I mean, we have a team with lots of people who've done lots of open source, very strongly opinionated engineers i can't even get them get my team to use it without kind of proving the value in it so i worked on it a bit without really talking to them and then was like right i built this thing let's at least give it a try yeah because i i don't know maybe maybe i'm wrong in this but i think it's quite a fundamentally different way of thinking about how you build user interfaces from from lots of the tools that exist today in the python ecosystem and so there's a bit of a like education piece and a trying to understand the principle as well as the like mechanics of going and using it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to dive into the philosophy, but I'll give people the too long didn't read version. Basically, you can create UIs in pure Python in sort of dynamic web framework friendly ways, right? Yeah, probably the, the mistake is in my description of it because yes, it does that. But where I, I personally think fast UI is powerful and where we're using it in within the Pynantic team is actually... We have got front-end developers. We've got some really expert guys like who are very comfortable building stuff in React. But right. we want to those two roles to have to constantly communicate to build every every individual bit. So the idea is, I think if you go down the page a little bit, I kind yeah, of explain yeah. it. But like for a front, for a, for a Python developer, it's this way of building UIs without having to touch TypeScript or JavaScript or NPM or any of those Byzantine like mess of build tools. But then for a front-end developer, it's this opportunity to go and build the best components you can and allow, get, basically provide a powerful interface for, for your back-end guys to go and build a, build a UI with it. So kind of split those two things up and I guess allow React to do what React does brilliantly, which is allow which is provide these like reusable components. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a framework as well to bring the navigation and the cohesion of, of the whole app together, not just a particular view or a page too, you would say, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the weird bit, this principle of RESTful interfaces. We've all, we've all heard of REST or RESTful, and we all think we know what it means, which is basically something to do with a URL structure and return me some JSON that like gives me the data I need to render my view. Well, if you look at the uh, Roy, Field- Roy Fielding's original PhD, as is brilliantly described in this HTMX article that I, I talk about further on down here, he's not really talking about that stuff. Sure, he has some stuff on what the URL structure should be, but really his principle is that the... The data returned from the back end should be self-describing, as in it should have everything you need to go and render the user interface. So let's say, I think that he, they're using the HTMX example, example of like a bank account. And if you go down to like principle, the long version, here we are, right? I've, I've linked to the PhD, but more importantly, the HTMX article, which explains it really well. I think if we follow that, yeah, I think they'll even on that page. There's a very have a jokey tone lots of the time HTMX, but they also <laughs> talk about a really cool thing. But yeah, somewhere absolutely. I think they have yeah, here we are, right? So if you look at the traditional JSON response, which I think is the second one, and you would you were trying to show Yeah, right. So so this you and I as humans can read this and be like, Yeah, that kind of explains my bank account and what's going on. But there is not enough right. it's got like an account number and a balance, which is a more complicated object, nested object and those types of things. Right. It's got all the things and we can read account number, cool, that's a number, balance, yeah, that makes sense. But if your computer, there's not enough there to go and render someone the nice user interface they would want where they would have it displayed on a page. So if you were the engineering team in the bank trying to turn this into a, a web interface, you then need to go and have lots of very application-specific or page-specific logic to show where the account number goes and where the balance goes and where the status goes and stuff like that. Right. And that causes enormous amounts of churn, and it means that it's particularly difficult when you have those engineers working in different time zones because you end up having this spec between the two. And then you always have this problem with software where, fine, we can get it to work, but what happens when we come to add it? 
So what's the process of, let's say we want to show as well on this page, your like joint account balance, let's say, just to make something up. What we probably need to do is we need to get the back end guys to go and add that to endpoint and then the front end, and that can be deployed and then the front end can be updated to show that and the data is available. That is a lots of churn, lots of delay in that. Right. Uh, lots of coordination between the two domain experts. And then it kind of, you got that microservice cascading, like it's got to do, then this one's got to be upgraded. And then eventually there's enough flow of data through the system that the UI people can put it up there, right? Right. And so, okay. and, and it's bad in this, this case of like showing your bank balance, but it gets even worse when you have a fall where every field in the form needs to be, needs to be completed, for example. And so we basically have to deploy the front end that, that has all of the form components and the back end that receives that, the, that new form at the same time. And we've got this Pydantic model that, you know, depending on how we've done it, probably is used to define our form and it might even be used to define our, our database. But like we're not using a Pydantic model in the front end. TypeScript, in my opinion, is big Achilles heel in, in typing is that you don't have any, you can't use type ins at runtime. And so we don't have an equivalent of Pydantic. And so we're basically trusting that data is how it is. So yeah, Fast API is, a, is an attempt, sorry, Fast UI is an attempt to basically remove that need to, to like have complete synchronization between backend and front end by having beautifully designed components in the front end. Not saying what we have now is that beautiful, but that's the idea long term. But then the back end can basically just can do the orchestration, can say, show me a table, show me a form, show me a, a modal and put the following content in it, et cetera. Excellent. Nice comment from Tony on the audience. I originally started in Python, went to using TypeScript. Pydantic made the transition back to Python so nice. And so in your description, you also have appeared that this Pydantic is interesting, is involved here. Like, what is the role that Pydantic plays right. in defining all this? So the idea is that we're getting to of this RESTful UI is really that we we end up having a bunch of components in the, like a shared definition of some components. And we basically promise that the back end is going to send data that matches the types defined in the front end. Well, that's all very well, but if you're not careful, you end up not sending quite the right data. So what's nice is that all of the components that you can return from FastUI are themselves Pydantic models. And so Pydantic goes off and does not only the validation, but also the coercion. And it does stuff like uses camel case so that front-end developers are happy because we've got every no underscores anywhere. And so, yeah, the, the, all of the, the front-end, the, sorry, the back-end code for FastUI is basically is just Pydantic models, which, which implement these, these components, right? So it might be useful for those who can see this to go in and it'll, I can talk through an example if we go into the code here and I can talk you through like a very basic component. Oh, maybe it'd be yeah. easier if I showed it here. So I've got, yeah. got, yeah. got, fast, uh, got the code base open here, just working on something. But if I open up here, source and then the Python package, and then we look into components and we can look at like a really simple component, probably a button, which would be a kind of understandable to everyone. Where's button? Here we are. So this is just a plain Pydantic model, which contains text, which is the text you would put within the button. Then it contains the event that you want to fire when someone clicks on it and mm -hmm. HTML type, which, you know, in this matches what you can get in HTML, button, reset, submit, and then class name, which becomes the classes that get, get applied. And then critically, this type, which is a literal, which has to be button, and that is used by the discriminated union in Pydantic to do the validation of, of different types. And it's also used by a big switch statement in the in the TypeScript to basically decide what component I'll go and render when I when I get what back an object. Right. When I get an object. Right. So there's some TypeScript. Maybe it makes sense to talk a bit about the building blocks. So you say fast UI is made up of four things. Just so right. people can get a sense of like, you know, what's at play here? Right. So, so the four things that we have now package, a Python package called FastUI, which I was just showing you there, the, the types for. Yep. And mm -hmm. then we have NPM package called FastUI again. It's in the Pydantic organization, which is where the meat of the, of the logic resides. And that's, that's implementing basically the most of the components and all of the, the wiring to mean that when I return a button, a button, the button component gets, gets rendered. And then, but obviously we don't probably want to end up using a vanilla button when we come to right. display it. So then I've implemented basically customization of the fast UI React library using Bootstrap. So all that's really doing is it's deciding what classes to append to use with each component and also just customizing a few of them. So for example, modal 
there's no like nice way to do a vanilla modal. So the modal implementation right. in the default fast UI PM package just basically shows me alert saying this isn't implemented, whereas the bootstrap one uses a nice bootstrap modal. And then we have finally fast UI pre-built, which basically uses the fast UI package, customizes it with fast UI bootstrap and then, and then builds it. And that means we can, we can go and basically return that pre-built react app without having to get our hands dirty with NPM on yarn and lights yeah. and all the other, all the web packy bundling, minifying, right, right. transpiling business. But the cool bit, in my opinion of fast UI is that at its core, it's really the definition of a bunch of different schemas effectively. Those schemas yeah. are, are defined in Pydantic and they're defined in TypeScript, but they could perfectly well be, and, and really nicely, I just merged it the other day, we now use the JSON schema generated by Pydantic and JSON schema generated by the React types to basically go and test that there's an equivalence between those two those models everywhere. But in theory, there's nothing to stop the front end from being built with another JavaScript library or even, even with something like HTML and HTMX. Or even you could go and use React Native and, and build, or even some kind of embedded device. You could go and implement those components. And then on the other side, and this is even more achievable, you could go and return data that matches those models from a Rust or Go service. And in theory, not have to change your UI at all, because all you're doing is I promise that I'm going to match these schemas and then whatever front end or whatever back end can, can then communicate. Whether that yeah. comes to pass, I don't know yet. And obviously I, I built the, the default backend in Python because that's what I know best and where I think Pynantic's really helpful. And I built the, the first front end in, in React and TypeScript because one, that's what I know. And two, it's what we're using within Pydantic. But there's a, you asked, lots of people have asked about HTMX. People have also asked about Svelte and others. I think I wouldn't see the point in building like fast UI in Vue because I don't think it adds much. It's just a lot of work. Right. But I think there's a, there's a world where we build a HTMX template render, rendered version of fast UIs front end that could be super valuable. That's interesting. So first point is, these different components sound like they are potentially a little mix and match. You know, you could take it all as one big thing, or you could say, really like the way it defines the React front end, but we're going to implement it some some other endpoint. Yeah, I think it's something like, it, it'll be slightly skewed now because of tests, but I, I'd say it's sort of twice as much front end to back end at the moment, as in the, the yeah, it's skewed a bit by tests, but even now there's more TypeScript. So I think the simplest thing to do, and, and you could do it, pretty trivially would be to use another backend, uh, another language for your, for your backend service. And as long as it matches those types, and you could even go and use something like JSON schema to enforce that. But uh, yeah, the, re-implementing the front end, probably a bigger piece of work, but, but totally doable. I mean, I did it in my spare time in two weeks, built the whole thing. So it's, it's not, you know, millions of different things. There's kind of 20 components at the moment that are then composable to build reasonably sophisticated like UIs. So this is a web front end like Flask or Django sort of framework, but a way that really incorporates building the UI in Python and validating and enforcing that with Pydantic rather than just, hey, file new HTML, let's just start typing and hope they line up. <laughs> you know, like right. instead of trying to juggle all those different languages, CSS, HTML, all the JavaScript tooling for packing up stuff, just let's write Python, right? So maybe you got a simple example of what it looks like to define a real simple example here yeah. on on the readme it's got a very interesting parity between what is in the html dom and is what is in the python abstract syntax tree i guess right the the and visually as well the way you look at the code it looks like the way it might look in html like give us a sense of what writing uh, a ui in this would look like right so so i think first of all we have to talk about like the two enormous the two most obvious pitfalls for this one end of the of the pitfall you have, which which I think is the like the biggest temptation, is to basically mirror all of HTML in Python. And for those of us who are happy writing HTML or writing React, that sounds like hell. It's going to be slow because you have to do some weird rendering, but it's also just going to be a pig because I don't want to have to define every a href and everything else in Python code. It's as and there are going to be it, it requires for a start it requires you to know two things Python and HTML, whereas to write HTML you only need to know one. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Bright Data. Bright Data helps you turn websites into structured data. There's an unimaginable amount of data available on the internet, and we're lucky to live in a time where we have so many APIs to access structured data. 
But the truth is that most of the data out there is not served up over a clean API. It's just sitting there on a web page as HTML. Maybe it's even further obscured behind some front-end JavaScript framework like Vue or React. What if you need access to that data? Web scraping to the rescue, right? Yes, but just like you wouldn't set up your own production infrastructure in your home office, running a web scraping job on a single computer at a fixed location can lead to your program being unreliable with data pinned to that IP's location and much of the time blocked for rate limits and other such causes. If you need to do professional web scraping, Bright Data is the place to start. They have award-winning proxy networks and powerful web scrapers. What's more is they have ready-to-use data sets for download, so you might not even need to scrape data at all. And if you can't find the data set in their marketplace, they'll even build a custom data set for you. From listening to the show, you know that I'm a privacy-conscious person, and that's why I'm happy to see that they are both CCPA and GDPR compliant. Bright Data has both low-code solutions as well as Python programming models with async I.O. and Playwright. So if you have serious data needs and those websites don't offer APIs, then you need Bright Data. Check them out today at talkpython.fm slash bright data. And please use that URL. That way they know you heard about them from us. That's talkpython.fm slash bright data. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to Bright Data for supporting the show. I always find these things that try to dodge, like dodge the fact that HTML exists. I find them... I don't know, I just, they don't resonate with me. I, I'm not entirely sure why. It's like, we have really yeah. nice things like CSS and we have really, all, there's just so much tooling and frameworks, you know, you mentioned Bootstrap already, right? That just plug into there. And if it's like, well, we're just going to write, recreate it in Python. Well, it has all the oddities of HTML if it's going to be really yeah. high parity. And then you just have a, a less well-known way to do the same weird thing. You know, I don't know, just... It doesn't resonate super with me. I agree. And I've I found the same thing at times with ORMs, that you end up, the worst case of an ORM is you work out what you need to do in SQL, then you try and translate back from SQL to ORM, and it would be much nicer just to write my SQL. I mean, not always the case. ORMs can be powerful, but I, I think that they, they both can fall into the same same trap if you're not careful. And then I was going to say, at the far end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, you have and I guess Django's admin view for understandable reasons could suffer from this, that you basically have a very small set of things. You have a like a table page and a details page and a form page, and that's kind of it, right? So there's this difficult trade-off in where in that continuum do we try to, to choose what size of component to implement, right? So for example, here we, right. have, we have a heading, which is almost one-for-one one matches what you would do in HTML. We have the text that goes within it, and we have the level, which, you know, it's slightly different syntax, but it's basically one-for-one one matching an, an HTML tag. But then we have a table, which it doesn't look very much like an HTML table at all. We're not having to explicitly define the table body versus the table head. We're not having to put in each column. We're not having to worry. Yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff here that is much less like it. And that's where it's in these very common components where there is consistent things that lots of people want to do or lots of places in your app where you might want to do them where I think a, a framework like FastUI gets, gets super powerful because we can get you a table here with, with users defined and with a, a few columns with some customization on what happens when you, how we render each column much more quickly than we could go write out all the HTML for that. And yeah. it's much more concise to read. It, like, it's consistent enough that something like GitHub Copilot will help you write it out where you do have a bit of customization to do. I think this this is where it can be super powerful. Yeah, it's, it's, it is pretty interesting. And I like the hierarchy. For people listening, just check out github.com slash pydanic slash fast UI, the example right there on the page. It, but what you do is you create a, in this case, a fast API, API endpoint, and then you return a hierarchy of elements out of fast UI. So we have a page, the page has components, the components are a list of a header in a table, the table has data, which maps over to a list of Pydantic models, which then help say what goes in the field and uh, for the, the the column headings and things like that. It's pretty interesting. I think it's neat. Yeah, and, and obviously we can add other components like pagination that works. I think just just to come back to the top to, to how we do these views, the, the very simple, and it's, and it's most simple what FastUI's React app does, is it basically takes whatever the URL is you go to. So in this case, you might go to, to slash to the base URL and it prepends slash API 
and makes a request to that endpoint to basically say, what should I render? And it gets back. So, so this here, we're, we're basically returning a list of Pydantic models. All that the FastUI model is really doing is taking that list of Pydantic models and calling model dump JSON on it to get the JSON that we return to the front end. As I say, the front end then knows how to render each of those. Each dictionary in the list is what it is at its core. At its core, it's a, it's a list of objects to use JavaScript parlance. It just knows how to render each of them and it renders each of them in turn. And then obviously they can then have nested other models, all of which it knows how to how to render. Yeah, it reminds me of a couple of things. I have an example. Is this no somewhere along here? I pulled it up. It reminds me of kind of what React looks like. If people have done React, you know, you write a function that returns kind of an HTML thing, but then it has JavaScript arrow functions, right? It's uh, but it has the same nested feel, right? Did did React inspire you to create it this way, or not really? Yeah, it did. I, I've done quite a lot of React, and I, I like it a lot. I know there were as a as a popular piece of technology, there were lots of people who like to like to berate it, but I, I do think React has like been a powerful step forward. And you know, the greatest form of flattery is is copying. And there are enough other like sure there are other more powerful, arguably more powerful, arguably more performant new front end libraries. But everything is is component based now. Like you know, React just changed changed the there was a sea change in how we did front end with their component architecture. And JSX similarly is is super powerful. So one of the things that I think we're going to get to, I don't want to dive into it yet, but like in React, you would say like, we're going to return a photo context, uh, context or a switch or something that is not typically known in HTML. And these are higher order building blocks in the UI space, right? So when people think about what they're creating here in Python, it's not just the fundamental DOM objects and elements, is it? Right. So that, that that's exactly, yeah. So page here is a bit of ambiguity about how we're going to define a page. Uh, like default implementation does does something reasonably sensible. It like, you know, pads it, et cetera. But like heading isn't, there isn't much to do really. You're, you're going to return a heading. But when you come to a table, there's a lot of debate about how you're going to do that. And then when you move on to like even higher order components like a modal, then that's the, the how exactly that's implemented is, you know, in some sense, it's to completely the choice of how you've implemented it in the front end. You could you could do lots of different things, but but yeah, the it, the whole point is that it, it doesn't and shouldn't be like each HTML tag is written out because, as I say, I think that would be a like obvious failure mode for for this. Yeah. The other thing this reminds me of, by the way, just for people out there listening, is that it looks a lot like a Flutter. If people have done any Flutter, you've got these widget hierarchies. You build them. You maybe set some properties. You add in a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of elements. You know, set some children to a, an array of other sub elements. And this is done, of course, in Dart. But it's you know, this is kind of a Python version that's similar as well. These higher order widgets. Yeah, absolutely yeah. similar thing. And actually, the other place where I've, I've built this before is that internally, Pydantic core, the Rust bit of Pydantic, is effectively not entirely different to this, right? You 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 define these nested structures of different validators. Everything at its core is a like combined validator, which is a, in Rust terms an enormous enum of all the different types of validator, some of which have nested within them more and more validators. And that's how yeah. you build build up nested structures of, of pedantic models, which in the, turn is what these are. We're getting yeah, right. yeah. The the validators and the UI they kind of like have a similar structure. Bit of a, a sidebar, just a bit of a piece of code in here. You've got table, which is a class, square bracket, user which is another class, square bracket. I imagine that you and your team are deeper into the Python type system than the vast majority of others out there you know, with all the work with Pydantic and the interoperability with Rust. What is that? Tell people about this. Yes, yeah, so table is a generic. So if you, mm -hmm. you can imagine if you were doing list of ints, you would do list square bracket int. And that's the, basically the, the point is that, that list is a generic around... It's elements, same as mm -hmm. a dict is generic around its keys and its values, while table here is generic around the Pydantic model that you're using to using for each row. And particularly what that means is that it, what it means practically is that table has access to the class when it's deciding what the default columns are. So if you don't define the columns list as we have here to say what columns to display, it'll show all of the fields in the Pydantic model. And the point is we get access to that to the user before we've even if the, even if data was empty before the validation has happened uh, it, is it necessary is it slightly like yeah 
fancy use of pydantic types python types maybe it is but yeah if, uh, if you know give, forgive forgive the pydantic team or me in particular for occasionally <laughs> doing fancy things with python types that is definitely occupational hazard of what we do yeah i didn't mean it as a, a negative i just thought it was interesting no I, I agree and actually i had it somewhere else on forms and i removed it and realized it was it was it was unnecessary so you can definitely do too much such a thing as too much python typing yeah yeah Sure, though it is pretty interesting. So let's maybe talk about some of the examples. Actually, before we do, just give us a sense of where does this fit in the UI space for Python. On one hand, we've got Flask, Django, Fast API returning HTML, etc., yep. where it's all on you. You're doing all the five languages of <laughs> web apps, SQL, or or some query language. Python, JavaScript, CSS, some other tools, right? Like you're doing all that and you're yeah. doing my hand. On the other end, we've got tools that are pretty cool. Like we've got Anvil that lets you just write Python and do a draggy droppy sort of thing, which is is really neat, but it fits into a kind of a, a box for those types of apps. I just discovered Dropbase. Have you heard of Dropbase? Not seen Dropbase. So, yeah, but I, you've seen a lot of these like, get me a UI more quickly. Yeah, kind of. A lot of them are like kind of low code. Anvil, maybe I wouldn't really quite put it there, but they're pretty like low code, but then there's places where Python goes to make yep. it dynamic, right? So where in that spectrum would you put fast UI as it is today? Interestingly, and one of the reasons I wanted to come and talk to you was I heard your, you were you were talking the other day on, on your other podcast, and I, I heard you talking about uh, fast UI and kind of, I'd say, categorizing it into that, that, that group. And what I wanted to kind of, one of the things I wanted to come and say was, yes, we can do that. But the, the use case we have within Pydantic is actually to go and build a pretty complex, fully fledged application right. with, with front-end developers building components, but just get rid of that churn. Right. Something more like Gmail, less like, here's a table that I can click on and see right. some related table. Right, exactly. And, and okay. what I should probably put in the demo, and probably where Pydantic is people most associate it and where it's, this is going to be most useful is within forms. So I don't know yeah. if you want to go to the to the demo and I can talk people through, but like a yeah, lot yeah, well, of logic within FastUI is dedicated to forms. We can do things like nested pedantic models all become components within a form. And obviously we can do client-side validation with a whole bunch of stuff, and we can also do server-side validation. But then we get all the fancy stuff, like if the if the data is invalid and you get a validation error on the on the server side, we'll then basically re-render the form with the errors in place. All that stuff that like Anyone building a web application has to go and implement some version of it. At the moment, there's there are some some React libraries that will build you a form from JSON schema, but they don't perfectly fit in with with what Pydantic does or with with FastAPI. And so I have built some variant of that about five times. I still think the state of the art until now is Django, but like lots of us don't want to build our web applications completely with Django because it's a, it's pretty all or nothing, despite the the wonder that is Django. And so that's the kind of space where for me this this like becomes a really stands out because what would have been to do it properly it's days of work to get form valid to get form submission to work get client-side validation server-side validation get the redirect after your form none of that stuff is is entirely trivial even for those of us who've done it before whereas yeah. with the theory is with fast ui and and in although fast ui does not require fast api the form stuff is is quite tightly integrated with fast api and you can get yeah, a really good experience of building building stuff like forms. I think that, that where the alternative really today is is to use, uh, no disrespect to any of the Flask libraries or any of the other things, but I think the only real alternative right now is implement it yourself or use Django. Yeah, but I do also want to, but maybe before we get to that, let's try to take a little survey of what are these widgets, these building blocks that you can use. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, okay, absolutely. I think, I think I can find them here, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a fast UI demo, which I'll link to at onrender.com, the uh, prefix. But you talk about some of the things that you can just create in that Python hierarchy that you return that to, builds up your UI there. So maybe we talk us through some of the things that are here. Yes, we have the kind of generic markdown component, which will go up and renders the markdown. This table itself is, is implemented using the markdown component. Just a one side note, the markdown and the code, because they have quite a lot of JavaScript associated with them, but they're actually lazily loaded to make the make the pre-built fast UI app faster to load. Then we have text, probably the simplest one of all, just render some text. Paragraph, again, very simple. Page title is a slightly funny one. It doesn't actually display anything on the page, but it changes the 
the browser title, so what you see in the tab at the top of the page. Right. It's not always easy to do. Like, how do you inject it into the head when you're in the body? And like, it, it takes a little bit of uh, integration there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Heading again, very simple, like one to six HTML heading code. Bit more sophisticated. And if you click on code, maybe maybe those who can see it will be able to click through. Oh, code is yeah. So code is there. We we get a like highlighted bit of a bit of source code displayed. Mm -hmm. It's color coded with like class types having a color and keywords having a color. That's nice. Like you would see in, in GitHub or something like that. So again, sure. like just, you just like work out the box. Then we have right. some components like a link list and link, which are used in other components mostly. So if you, the nav bar you see at the top of the page there, that uses a link list. And then we have links. Then we get into kind of more sophisticated components. So the first one, you see a button which loads a modal and then the button which loads a dynamic modal. So that when the modal loads, it will make a request to get the content you want to see within that modal. So that could be a form or it could be customized depending on, on the form in the page. Then we have loading content from the server, which is the same thing we were doing in the modal, but on the page. Then we have this SSE component. So again, very simple to use within FastUI, but like quite a lot of work to use server-side events to basically dynamically update a React component if you weren't using that. Yeah. So your server load SSE widget, yep. that provides, like you said, server sent events, which I don't know how many people are familiar with SSE. I'm sure they're familiar with WebSockets and they're familiar with just like a JavaScript event, but this is like an intermediate sort of lightweight, one directional, but the, normally the opposite <laughs> in reverse, I guess, from the server to the client sort of pushing out stuff, right? So that's a really powerful thing. And if it's, if it's that easy to just hook a function call when something happens... That's pretty yeah. cool. One of the things I want to try with SSE that I think will work really nicely is LLM responses where you get like one token at a time because you don't want to wait for the whole thing. Yeah. Exactly. Send events would be perfect for basically printing out the, the response from an LLM. And again, it would be like, you know, two lines of code to add that to an app with FastUI. It would not be two lines of code to go and implement that yourself, whether you're using <laughs> pure JavaScript or React or whatever framework. Yeah. Then we have, have iframe, which again, kind of map, we're back to kind of mapping one to one to a component. One of the nice things to say about both iframe and image is they were contributed by other people. So I don't think I'd even created an issue asking for them, but people have come along and added them. It's been one of the nice things to see. I think we had 18 or so people contribute to the first release, first release after, after my initial release or sorry, the second release of fast UI. So yeah, good engagement from lots of people image. Yeah. So you've got a bunch of UI stuff here. And it just as I look at this, and I, I see what you're building, it just makes me think of like, wow, there's an opportunity for stuff like, like what you get, out, not necessarily the same as but like what you get out of say tailwind UI, where the things you might work with are on off switches, you know, like toggles, like you might see in your phone or other sort of elements that have like a lot of design imbued in them that people can just grab and use almost like a Django philosophy for the front end in a sense there. Is that something that you are dreaming of or? Someone was complaining somewhere that we didn't have a grid component yet. And I, I think we'll do one, but like those bits get quite opinionated, but yeah, like calendar completely yeah, exactly. obvious choice, right? Complete fast to go and implement that yourself in HTML commonly used trivial to define because, because the definition, there aren't that many different things to define. You, you choose your month. You know, most of us are on the Gregorian calendar, right? We're not We're not yeah. going to have to change too much what calendar we're going to render. So it, yeah, that's a perfect example of the kind of thing. Tiles like this, again, totally possible to go and implement them. And again, obviously you can use, we can provide some nice default, but also if you're a bigger company and you want to go and customize it, you can totally do that. And you can have a front-end developer go through and implement the classes that basically customize customize the look. I wanted to come back just and show you some of the so that yeah. some of the other components. So we were on yeah this one here. I don't know if we have anything more below that, but I would love to show you the the tables because the tables and the forms are, are really where it comes into. So cities is probably the best example. Cities are the one. Okay, yeah, awesome. This is a, a list of of cities just for some public data set with country and population. But at the top, you see we we have a filter to choose by country. And if we click here, if you start start searching like UN or something you'll see we're doing a server side, we're loading from the server, the list of cities. So again, this huh? component to go and implement, if you were gonna do that from scratch, you've gotta have use some like clever, uh, yeah, this is a list of countries. So if you do like- Oh, UK, countries, yeah. sorry, I'm typing in cities. For... <laughs> uh, you did like UN, right. you'll get United Kingdom and United States. Yeah, perfect, there you go. Right, and then we do United States or whatever, you know, yeah. And then we'll get a bunch of cities in the United States. Building this and, and wiring it all up and using one of the, we use React Select here, but you can use Select 2 or one of those components. It's not trivial. You need to also set up the back end. You need to set up, the, this, there's like 
a few hundred lines of React dedicated just to sit it, setting up those those selects correctly. And as you'll see in a minute on a form, you can add this to a to form with FastUI pretty trivially. Secondly, if you go to the bottom of the page on cities, you'll see pagination. Again, not a trivial thing to go and set up if you've got if you're just starting from scratch and you want to show like build an internal endpoint, for example, to show all of your users doing all that pagination and, and like wiring all that up is not trivial, but we effectively do the work for you to have that component and do the maths of, of which page we're on and stuff like that. Nice. I want to like reiterate this is that FastUI is not just designed as a kind of Django admin interface alternative. We within Pinanzig are going to go and use it for UI that we're going to show to end users. But obviously, it also comes into its own when people want to just get something up quickly. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Sentry. You know Sentry for the air monitoring service, the one that we use right here at Talk Python. But this time, I want to tell you about a new and free workshop. Heming the Kraken, managing a Python monorepo with Sentry. Join Salma Alam Nayor, senior developer advocate at Sentry, and David Winterbottom, head of engineering at Kraken Technologies, for an inside look into how he and his team develop, deploy, and maintain a rapidly evolving Python monorepo with over 4 million lines of code that powers the Kraken utility platform. In this workshop, David will share how his department of 500 developers, who deploy around 200 times a day, use Sentry to reduce noise, prioritize issues, and maintain code quality without relying on a dedicated Q&A team. You'll learn how to find and fix root causes of crashes, ways to prioritize the most urgent crashes and errors, and tips to streamline your workflow. Join them for free on Tuesday, February 27th, 2024 at 2 a.m. Pacific time. Just visit talkpython.fm slash sentry dash monorepo. That link is in your podcast player show notes. 2 a.m. might be a little early here in the U.S., but go ahead and sign up anyway if you're a U.S. listener because I'm sure they'll email you about a follow-up recording as well. Thank you to Sentry for supporting this episode. If we have a design language or something like that, or even using a framework, I mean, you mentioned Bootstrap, but Tailwind or Bulva, is that one of the new ones? Like, if we're working with one of those and we wanted to use this, like, how easy is it to sort of bring in those elements there? So if I show you here on Boot, so I'll show you how we customize it with Bootstrap, which is probably the best definition of it. So you'll see here, this is in the, this is the, where am I looking? This is the pre-built version. So this, this is obviously the, the pre-built version of FastUI you can get, but it, it's actually just, it's a very simple app in terms of React. This app has one, well, two components. It has a div, which contains the FastUI component. And then we customize it in a bunch of ways. We have a like component that we render for not found. We have a component we render for spinner and for transitioning. But then these are the two that really matter, where we can customize the classes and we can customize how we render certain components. So if we come in here to have the, this function from Bootstrap, which is how we customize the classes, you'll see that at its core, it's just this big old switch. So this is all uh, TypeScript, like type safe, because uh, types are very powerful in TypeScript. But like all of the props will have this type key as I showed you earlier, when we were looking at the, the Python code. That's like and we the button on, and all the different things, yeah. Based on the switch, we just go through, and this is, this is all just like defining the classes we want for all of the different components, some of them depending on the exact state of the component. So all of these form inputs, we, we customize them depending on which type they are and on which mode we're in, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's all very mechanical, just like laying out the classes we need for each, and in, each individual case. And then we have the other way of customizing it, which is to use custom components, we basically, for, for three in particular components, navbar, uh, modal, and pagination, we define our own custom React component. So right. here's the one for navbar, where we use a bunch of uh, bootstrap types to render a bootstrap navbar. So you could basically create a React component that has all the settings necessary to create a navbar in Tailwind or whatever, right? And then just plug that stuff in. So, so if you wanted to use Tailwind, what's this, like 20, it's like 100 lines of code to define all of the classes. And it's pretty mechanical code, right? So it, would be, it wouldn't be hard at all to go and use Tailwind, Tailwind CSS. And then you might want to define a few of your components specifically. Yeah. But actually, modal, I think, is the only one that really requires it to be custom implemented because the default just shows you an alert because there's, there's nothing. <laughs> right. into a JavaScript, module. the page says, it's like, oh, no, the page doesn't say this isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is one of the bits I'm most proud of here is that like, 
how much you could customize it and and how simply you could start to customize it. Right, those are really uh, like kind of pluggable or extensible, so you don't have to you know get in and know too much about it. You just plug in the the class name generator and the renderer for a right, specific exactly. one. And so and, yeah, and, and all of the types, it's all TypeScripted. So you, the types should do a lot of help telling you what what you can implement. The last thing I'll show you is yeah. So here in the default build, as I said, we our custom render function is not just a bootstrap one. We do one special thing, which is where we, we have this idea of a custom component, which basically all it has is a subtype, which basically you should use to render it however you like. So in our case, we take custom. And if the subtype is cow say, we render that as a particular block, like use this, <laughs> this component here. And, and we print out the cow says whatever it was that the input was from the server. And otherwise, we just go back to using the bootstrap render. And so if nice. you look at, look at that component here, yeah, we've got <laughs> this like slightly silly example of a custom component of Kausei saying something. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> but yeah, it shouldn't be too difficult to customize. And then even if you're customizing to go back to using Bootstrap for, for the fallback case of everything else. Okay, so you could almost just for one section that has to be really specialized do something custom, but otherwise just lean on a framework. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this looks like something that one person could take one for the team create a tailwind or a whatever yep. generator, class name generator, and then put that as either a contribution or put it up on GitHub, and then you just, you're kind of good to go. Yeah, I think we might we might actually do it. We're, we're using Tailwind and Radix within Pydantic, so I suspect our front-end guys will at some point get annoyed with my use of Bootstrap and go off and um, <laughs> go and change it. One of the reasons I use Bootstrap is that because Bootstrap is completely customized via SCSS, and there's SCSS compilers for Python, we have the, at least a possibility in future to allow you to customize the complete look and feel of your app without ever having to touch NPM because you just go change basically the color definitions as, as we do here. So so the, the default version right. of, uh, maybe I can even change it here and as it's running, it'll change. But if I, here you see, I've set the primary color to be black. And so you'll see the buttons here are all rendered as black. If I were to change it, I haven't tried this for a bit, so I hope it works. <laughs> Commented out primary, you'll there see you that the, change to blue. They've all the, changed the primary, to blue. Uh, which is the bootstrap primary you know, button right. dash. And if dash I changed, the, if I got rid of the de default font, you would see we went back to whatever the other font was. So there's a world in future where we allow you to customize the look and feel even within Bootstrap from Python code. Yeah, tell people maybe who don't know what SCSS is. They probably know what CSS is. It's generally referred to as SAS, which is SASS, yeah. which was is is basically a. A more powerful version of, of CSS where you yeah, can... SAS and less. Those were the two. Yeah, there was SAS and less, and then we kind of settled on SAS, but then we had SCSS, which is SAS with more CSS-y syntax. It's a way to like do slightly more powerful things in, in CSS and minify it and have stuff like variables before they were available in CSS and, and defaults, and even you can do weird stuff like map functions, and they're yeah. used very heavily in Bootstrap. But yeah, the, the nice. nice bit is because the compiler is written in C, there's libsass in Python where you can get kind of a front-end customization without needing the whole of Node and the, the whole dog and pony show and front-end development. <laughs> yeah, excellent. It's got a lot of legs. So when I saw this, and I saw, okay, this is a, for, for web apps, and it's kind of got this, this Python code running that defines the backend, and it's got the UI, and it's all a little self-contained. One of the thoughts I had was... Wouldn't it be neat if there was a, a little bundler type of thing that made this into an Electron app? Would this be possible? Can we get something that you could send out or is this really just going to be intended to be you know, kind of a, a friend of Django type of thing? I have not used Electron for a very long time, so I don't pretend to be an expert. What I will say is that unlike some of the other UI libraries, we're not trying to do clever things with WebSockets and, and do all of the all of the rendering requiring duplex communication between the client and the server, it's pretty simple. It's like make a request and the JSON contains some information about how to yeah. render it. And then the front end goes off and renders it. So it's the result, what you get when you finish is very, in terms of from a networking point of view, very, very simple, very conventional. It's, it's like make an HTTP request, get back JSON, JavaScript knows how to render it. And so I don't see why it shouldn't, shouldn't work in, in Electron. There's even the world in which we don't need the whole of Electron and we could, someone could go and build fast UI components for, for whatever native library and we could get like native apps running that are based on fast UI. Not saying that's yeah. necessarily a good idea, 
but like those possibilities exist. <laughs> it is, it does exist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Another thing that is convention, I suppose, I'll see if I can pull it out here is the UI. A lot of times you'll have either just slash or have slash users, but then you'll have an API that backs it. And there's this convention that if it's in the URL, if you have slash API slash in this example, we were looking, talking about before, it's like slash table slash cities. If you say API slash table slash, that's the data endpoint. And then if you drop the API, that's the front end that then turns around and calls the back end with the API inserted, right? You want to talk about that convention a little bit so people kind of see where that's going? Yeah, so that's how, how I've set it up in the default app. It doesn't, you don't have to do it like that. And I think we're using a separate subdomain to avoid like path-based routing and all that fun. But yeah, the the, the principle, the, the default simplest way of uh, basically doing a, calcu- excuse me, a calculation to go from, I've got a URL, how do I get the data for it is, as I said earlier, basically prepend slash API. So maybe a more general way to think about it is for every page, there is an endpoint that is a fast API endpoint or a pair of them, maybe even one returns the HTML front end stuff that makes it yeah. run. That it talks around and goes back to itself, right? Yeah. So what we have in the default app here, what I would generally recommend is, where are we? We have a bunch of routers that connect and do all of the API stuff. And I've just been implementing or which I can show you in a minute, but that's not available. There's a PR for it, but it's not available in the demo you're looking at. But then we have this like basically catch-all endpoint, which if nothing else has been hit, will render the standard HTML. And one of the nice things is that the Python library gives you this pre-built HTML, which will basically render you some render you the HTML that you'll get if you I, I went here and I view page source, you'll see right, you it's just page, returning yeah. well. Yeah. In this particular, if I went to eight thousand, then it wouldn't be messed up by Vite. You just get this very simple HTML, which in turn renders the app. So yeah, there's effectively you're right. There's two there's two there's a like matching endpoints for for every view you might want to have, one for, mm-hmm. to get to return the JSON, the one to, to render the HTML. But you don't write you don't write them both, right? You write the API one, and then fast UI magically or turns whatever, that into UI, right? And whatever, and this would all of most of this, with the exception of the form submission, would all just work out of the box with with any Python web framework. You just need to produce your financing model, dump it to JSON, and return that in a response. But yeah. one of the really nice things about the this being the like actual data existing in JSON is that writing a test there's quite a lot here but, but you'll see most of it is is markdown so writing a test that our views contain what we expect them to is massively easier when we're testing <laughs> against JSON which we can convert yeah. to Python objects and test than it would be if we've got an HTML page and we're running a bunch of regexes for does this page contain the user's name does it contain the word log out blah 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 yeah um, by by uh, write type of things or th- those types yeah. of tests sure oh yeah even worse you end up with like playwright and like yeah, playwright that's take it, an yeah. image of it and see if the image looks like the image used to look and yeah <laughs> things i don't want to have to build i mean they have to happen occasionally but like we and ironically we'll probably end up with them in fast ui to like even more certainty that our components work correctly but hopefully that thereby avoid everyone else having to having to go and build them. is there any concern that maybe there's unintended apis in the sense that like all of the stuff i'm sure this is probably true for pretty much any React site, but like a lot of the page is available also as an API, even if you don't intend it to be an API, like what's... Yeah, that's a limitation of any... I mean, in some ways, the data will be slightly less nice to... Yeah, you're right. If you're a company that give people foreign exchange rates and you want them to always come to your site, you obviously can't render that with, with React because there's going to be a JSON endpoint where someone can just go scrape your exchange rates or whatever else right, it might be. right but you can still do session based auth and say you have to log in to do it right it's not just that it's public it just yeah. there's always a json version but honestly there's so many interesting ways to pull data out of html like yeah if someone is that right, valuable someone will do it anyway i, I also yeah. think that like in theory if your options are build pure react or do this then this has the the like as i say there's the realistic chance someone's going to come along and implement a fast UI front end that that renders HTML and then and then you don't have to expose your expose those JSON endpoints at all and you could you could return HTML from your server. We just haven't got around to building it yet. Yeah, I guess you could maybe do some kind of server side rendering potentially as well. Exactly, that's what I mean. Whether it's yeah, Python okay. server side rendering or whether it's JavaScript server side rendering or whether it's edge rendering, I tried to build a sort of edge rendering oh, yeah. thing in Cloudflare years ago using Rust and for a bunch of reasons it didn't quite work, but those real possibility of doing like yeah any number of different things in that direction oh, that's interesting some of the cdns have pretty 
dynamic stuff right at the edge where you can sort of put your last bit of code. Yep. I haven't done anything with, the, with that. That's kind of what Remix is doing and, and, and Next.js to a lesser extent. So, but again, in theory, the, I mean, maybe I'm over, overblowing it and it, it, fast UI will remain what it is now, but like in theory, we just, we've set up this, this language of different components that, that hopefully is whilst by no means universal, complete enough that you can build lots of common user interfaces with it. And then if it really gains adoption, then people can go and build new backends and new frontends, and they all, in theory, should be able to mix and match with each other. We'll see if that happens. Yeah. And widgets too, right? Kind of like see a Tailwind uh, UI create a paid thing for higher order widgets, potentially just being React already makes that, that probably exists, and I just don't know. And there's, there's been a number of issues of people wanting to render existing, basically build extensions to fast UI to render their widgets. I think we will probably support the repra HTML that things like pandas data frames already return so that you could, for example, return a data frame and it might not be pretty, but you'll get something coming up as HTML and, you know, start ugly and then move on to, to doing those things in an even more powerful way. Sure. Yeah. I didn't even think of the data science side, but there's probably a lot of cool dashboard widgets connected to pandas and pullers that are potential out there. Yeah. And charts and visualizing data is something yep. Finantic is interested in. There's no reason why a lot of them couldn't be implemented as fast UI components and then displayed. Okay. We are running pretty short on time. I feel like we should probably bring a little more Pydantic to the side. Just talk real quickly about forums, right? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So if you, probably easiest if you share, let me see, share my screen. I'll, I'll do it from here because I can also it's it, yeah. like the full behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably most interesting if we if we look at the how the form is implemented in the code first, and then we look at what that what that means for the UI. So this is the the login form that Michael you were just showing here that I can show, which is just so there's boring. a login form with an email address, password, some validation, right. basically like that. Yeah, That's powered entirely by again a completely vanilla Pydantic model, and the way that we return that is we return three things: we're heading, which is like just telling the person what we're looking at here in the demo. And then this third thing is the, is the interesting bit where, again, actually, the model form is, again, generic around the Pydantic model. And then it takes one other argument, which is the submit URL. And that's enough information. Right. So what you're returning as part of that hierarchy in Python is a model form, and you give it a Pydantic model. And so it looks at the Pydantic class and says, we're going to create like an email address and a password field and so on, right? Exactly that. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And then... When you submit that form, it's submitted as form data. So as a, not as, as JSON data, but as a vanilla HTML form. A standard uh, form post type of thing. Post yep. form. And then we have this, It's this syntax is definitely slightly funky here, but, but it's how <laughs> we do it in fast, UI, fast API. We have form, which is annotated as a login form, but it's also got fast UI form, which in turn, which also takes login form, all of which looks a bit ugly. But what we're really doing in the background is converting form data into the Pydantic model, including flattening and deflattening the model in the case where we have nested models, which I'll show you in a minute. But the result of this okay. is once we, in our, in our post endpoint, we get an instance of, of the login form that we can then go do stuff with. If I show you a more comprehensive or complex example, this, this big model here becomes big form, and this has, <laughs> has a bunch more stuff in it. So it has... File inputs. Yeah. Now, file inputs are one of the reasons we can't just submit submit JSON because yeah, they can be very large. Part encoding and all those things. Yeah, all those things. Right. And so here we have a name. We use bold again, as I have before, to to indicate required fields. So we could, I don't know, have got some Pydantic logos here that I'll uh, <laughs> use as images. This one is multiple images, so we can select multiple images, a date field in this case, data I've got a calendar picker. Very nice. Is that uh, just input type equals? That's just input type calendar. equals equals date. Okay. We have switches. We have, and then you'll see here, we have size model arrow width and size model arrow height. And the, the point is that we're doing here, and these are integer fields, but the cool bit is that they map to a nested Pydantic model within the big model. Okay. What FastUI is doing internally is basically flattening this into one list of form fields, which is then what we get rendered here. I see. So in your Pydantic model, you have a size op object, but then in the form, it just has the width and then the height one after yeah, another. Size width and size height, exactly that. If I put a, a requirement or a restriction like min or max onto the field in the size model, would that become a client side min and max in the form? There's an open PR to do exactly that. 
Yeah. Awesome. So that, that okay. we will do. But obviously, we will get server-side validation as well. I mean, and then we'll the other thing, for a couple of weeks, so like it's <laughs> there's I, more to do, right? But that's awesome. That'll be fun. Yeah. And then you'll you'll see in uploads, we have some some quite powerful things we can do here. So we use the upload file, which is a starlet type, but we can also annotate it with form file file, which takes two optional arguments of what rule, what accept to apply. So that will both in the browser when you open the... Oh, yeah, when you choose the file browse dialog. Yeah. It'll tell so you, you what have a mime. So for people listening, you have the mime type set, not like an extension, but you have image slash star, which means, you know, image slash JPEG, PNG, WebP, et cetera, right? Right. And that's understood okay. by the browser and then by the, and then by the OS to, to let you select files. But it's also validated server side. So if someone goes and edits their HTML and submits a not image... The, the server-side validation will check, at least based on the file extension, that it that it looks like an image. And yeah. you, you get back the bytes, so you could also go do validation that the bytes are a valid image if you if you so right. wanted. You could read the BOM, the, the mark that indicates the file type that's sometimes in these different files, yeah. If I submit this, but let's say, well, first of all, if I try and submit this because we've got server-side validation of which fields are required, it won't let me submit if this file field is not completed. And then I think... If we put in name and we don't capitalize it in this case, we'll go off and do the validation and come back and we'll say name will start with a capital because I've implemented it. Where is that validation? Oh, I see. That's a, a function that you write. Right. So just to, to prove the point, I've just written a validator in, in Pydantic, which says this must start with, with uppercase. And um, if I then went in here and edited that to okay. print out the form, is that going to now clear my form? No, it's not, which is magic. And if I submit that, you'll see here where I printed out the, the form, we got the we got the different file objects and we got the raw data all come through as the Pydantic model. Yeah, that's really cool. And so I love how even the custom validators in Pydantic, like Python code that you wrote appears on what feels like client side, but is really server side validation run by um, yeah. React, right? Yeah, exactly that. And so so we'll do stuff like link checks and all the things you can do on an input client side as well but of course they'll also be be enforced server side which obviously if you're building anything that you is going to be exposed to the internet you've got to do yeah you should never never trust what comes into your web app it's just put it online for five minutes and look at the log it's already trying somebody's already after wpadmin.php yeah. you know yeah exactly that and then the, the last thing i'll show i know we haven't got very long at all is authentication which i've just been working on now so this is again it's a simple form i'm just going to select an email putting the random password and I can log in. And in this case, I've logged it. It just says who I am and how many people are logged in. If I come back to this page, it'll show me logged in and I can do post requests to, to log out. And what it's doing internally is, and again, this is the kind of thing that would be lots and lots of work to go implement if you're doing it yourself, is it's storing in session storage, the auth token, then adding it as a header where we do the fetch from the front end to the back end. So we can effectively store, store sessions that way. Oh yeah, very cool. Yeah, that auth token's coming in as a, a header item or being set as a header item. Excellent. Right, exactly. Cool. So yeah, I, I hope that we've, we've done a bit of a whirlwind tour through through FastUI and what's there now and what, what I hope is coming up and the like slightly philosophy of, of how why I, why I built it. But yeah, I hope that was interesting. It's super interesting. And it's really early days. I'm, I'm looking forward to two things, to see what people go do with it, what widgets and stuff they build. So, you know, can you drop in, like you said, a calendar or something awesome like that? And I'm also looking forward to see what you all internally release in a couple months from mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me and letting me witter on about about this this random library. Yeah, of course. Uh, good work. It's certainly creative. Maybe just give people a sense of, you know, as we wrap it up, can they use it now? Should they use it now? Can they contribute? Maybe they're interested. What do you tell that yeah. crew? I'd love people to contribute both. I mean, almost most useful is, is issues saying, how you're using it, where it's working, where it's not. There is a bunch of people who've already submitted PRs and, and continue to do so. And yeah, I, th I think it, what works works pretty rigorously and it's probably better implemented and tested than lots of like private code. But definitely within uh, internal uses, use it now. And like I say, Pydantic is building things, building things with it now. So look, I mean, I'm not, I give the open source guarantee that it's relatively safe, which is <laughs> the, the guarantee that means nothing. Um, but mostly because... At the end, it's just defining how you build your UI and how you implement your session authentication. It, it's not having strong opinions about that. So 
yeah, I think it's I think it's the place where people should go and try it and and give give feedback. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Looking no, forward to talking sure. to you next week. No, just kidding. Like two in a row, I suppose. Looking forward to talking to you twenty twenty four. Absolutely. Have a good Christmas. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Bright Data is professional web scraping and a data set marketplace. If you need data and it doesn't have an API, check out talkpython.fm slash brightdata today. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.